3: Navy Federal Credit Union. Our members are the mission. Savings products insured by NCUA. Investment products are not insured. Not obligations of Navy Federal and may lose value. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Hey,
2: welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. This is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick, and it's Saturday,
0: time for a Vault episode. This one originally aired December 1st, 2020, and it was called Airships Over Venus. Uh, we, we, I think it was sort of a grab bag of uh, interesting stuff we'd been reading about the clouds of Venus.
2: Yeah, different proposed and um, and in some cases executed uh, missions to Venus. Uh, so it's pretty fun, especially yeah, if you're into Venus, and you should be because Venus is a really interesting planet, uh, then this is a great episode for you.
0: Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, a production of iHeartRadio.
2: Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick. And hey, Rob, it
0: has been a while since we checked in on the air fryer planet. So what do you say we talk about Venus today?
2: Yeah, I think it is high time that we return to Venus uh, for for a few different reasons. First of all, even though we have covered Venus in the past, there's just so much weird and wonderful stuff to discuss about uh, the planet that we had to return. Uh, also, in the past year, we've had some uh, developments concerning Venus, and also there's a, a particular um Plan uh, a project in the in the works that I'd like to discuss in more detail. Uh, really, just like Venus is just such a, a wild and wonderful planet, and our attempts to understand how we might might be able to further explore it, and also our history of exploring it, is just fascinating. So we just had to return.
0: Well, you know what we always say here with reference to Venus: I am the doorway. We are both the doorway. So let's open <laughs> ourselves and and walk through and in, into some thoughts about the the second planet.
2: Yeah, nice uh, Stephen King reference there. Uh, All right. Uh, So I guess one of the things with with Venus, you know, that I've been thinking about recently is like the the idea of of terra firma, you know, of the solid ground beneath our feet. Mm -hmm. And, And when I think about this, I often find it a bit weird because on one hand, the idea of firm Earth beneath us is truly reassuring. And and knowing that the Earth is round only makes it more so, at least to my mind, because in some respects, it means that it's Earth all the way down underneath us, you know? Like, the Earth might not be the center of the universe or even the solar system, but the center of the Earth is still a center, you know what I mean?
0: Yeah, it can't, uh, the Earth can't, like, collapse and fall through into a space beneath itself, because being a sphere, there is no space beneath it. You just, you go down until you hit the center.
2: Yeah. Now, the, the sky, of course, and if you're in the sky, th- that's not terra firma. And the same goes for the surface of the ocean, despite the fact that the ocean reminds us that terra firma isn't all it's cracked up to be. Much of of, of Earth is crushed beneath an ocean hidden in darkness. And mm-hmm. other proportions are covered in ice or propelled so far up into the atmosphere by mountain peaks that it, it pushes beyond what is a reasonable environment for humans. Sure. And then when we think of other worlds, it gets even weirder, right? The gas giants uh, boast no terra firma at all. And then there's Venus. On Venus, terra firma, or Venus firma more accurately, <laughs> would be a high-pressure, high-temperature hellscape. But higher up in its atmosphere or uh, you know, in or above the clouds of Venus, this is the region, ironically, that we might find metaphorical terra firma on the planet uh, that is Terra's strange sibling.
0: Mm, interesting thought. Okay, so we're going to be talking about the atmosphere of Venus today. Uh Now, this is this is a subject that's not entirely new to us. We've visited this in uh, some explorations before. We did one episode a couple of years ago about the possibility of life on Venus, where we discussed the the pros and cons and and various scientific speculation about what form that could take if it were to exist. And one of the things that kept coming up there was about the the difference between the surface of Venus and the atmosphere of Venus. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so, well, maybe we should just do a brief refresher on on Venus itself. Tell me about the planet. Like, I'm going on a blind date with Venus. What, what, have, <laughs> what have you got to sell me on this?
2: All right. So Venus is the second planet from the sun and is just slightly smaller than Earth. Size and surface area is quite similar to our own world, and in many ways, it can be seen as an alternative Earth. The two planets may have had very similar origins, but they parted ways long ago. Venus may have once had oceans and may have once, or even still, we'll get into this, supported life forms. But today, it's this dully-lit, high-pressure world with volcanic mountains and ashen plains. A runaway greenhouse effect boiled away the oceans long ago, and they were lost to space. There are no plate tectonics that we know of on Venus, and its volcanoes just spring up wherever instead of emerging along plate borders as they do on Earth. The high-pressure, high-temperature atmosphere is more than 96% carbon dioxide and 3.5% molecular nitrogen with trace amounts of other gases. If you're standing on the surface of Venus, it would be roughly 90 times the pressure of sea level on Earth. Um, Of course, it's going to vary depending on altitude, but that's sort of the ballpark the clouds are uh, often described as being concentrated sulfuric acid or more specifically sulfur dioxide with drops of sulfuric acid within it yes that that
0: is what the mist is so it's a carbon dioxide atmosphere but the the droplets that are suspended to make the clouds sulfuric acid have fun batman <laughs>
2: So when we we think about Venus, one of the cool things, and we've touched on this before, is that when we we think about life on Venus, either life that could still reside there now, native life, or the possibility, which we'll get into later in the episode, of of it sustaining our life in one way or another, we end up not looking to that hellish surface, to the actual uh, Venus firma. No, instead, we look to the clouds above or even the space a little above the clouds.
0: Yes, and this brings us to one of the main things that we wanted to talk about today, uh, which was that there was what looks like some really major news on the subject of possible life on Venus just a couple of months ago. Though the story turned out to be one of those cases of possible scientific whiplash. We'll get into the complications as we move on, but uh, but let's just take a look, if you're ready. Let's do it. Okay. Uh, so – for obvious reasons, the reasons we've just been talking about, the surface of Venus is just clearly sterile. There is no way you would expect to find any kind of organized life form living at, I, don't, I was going to say sea level, not sea level, the surface level of Venus. You know, again, mm-hmm. temperatures over 900 degrees Fahrenheit, somewhere between like 400 and 500 degrees Celsius. Extreme pressure, like you just said, something like 90 or 100 times the atmospheric pressure at sea level on Earth, it's sort of equivalent to going like, you know, hundreds of meters down under the water. Very, very high pressure. Um, It is difficult to imagine under these conditions that any sort of organized self replicating structures would be able to survive. And there are a few reasons for that. One thing is that, you know, like, uh, information-containing molecules tend to be pretty fragile, and they would be probably disrupted by heat of that kind. Also, you can't have water there, and it's hard for us to imagine what a life form that did not incorporate water would look like because water is a very – Water is the necessary solvent that makes the existence of cells possible. It allows, it allows the transportation of, uh, of different types of nutrients and molecules across membranes and, and stuff like that. Like you, you can't have life as we know it without water, and you can't have water on the surface of Venus. But as we've discussed on the show before, it is not impossible to imagine that life could exist higher up in the atmosphere of Venus. So this would be microorganisms floating in the clouds where at higher altitudes, the climate is relatively temperate. And this would not even be without precedent in known biology. We're not talking about some kind of organism that is unimaginable from from the perspective of Earth life, because here on Earth. There are bacteria such as uh, Pseudomonas uh, syringi that are thought to be present at higher altitudes floating within clouds. I've even read about interesting speculation that these bacteria floating in the clouds could affect weather patterns by serving as ice nucleation points that lead to precipitation. So think about that. Like, what if the weather is being affected by germs up in the sky? Hmm. And the idea of microbes floating in the clouds of Venus would even explain, uh, if, if it were true, some observed features of Venus that, that we don't fully know how to explain otherwise. Uh, David Grinspoon has, has written about this and he's a former show guest. We, we've talked to him a little bit about, uh, the signs of life on Venus that, that predate the paper that was published this year. Uh, things like recurring patterns of darkening observed in the clouds. Do you remember any of the other specifics he gets into about that?
2: I mean that, that's one of the big ones. That's one of the ones that we ended up focusing on. Yeah, this mm. this idea that it it almost thinks makes you think about oh some sort of uh, you know uh, plankton type uh, life form uh, thriving yeah. in the in the uh, atmosphere there,
0: like atmospheric algal blooms or something. Mm. Yeah. Um, But the other thing is that there is evidence that Venus was quite possibly once more hospitable than it is now. You mentioned this earlier, the possibility of surface water. Now, there is definitely not surface water on Venus right now. It would instantly boil, but the evidence makes it look highly plausible that Venus once had liquid water at its surface, even oceans, maybe as recently as a billion years ago or so. That's not a, I believe that's not a known fact, but it seems highly plausible. So, if there once was a full biosphere on Venus that was eventually wiped out at the surface level by the runaway greenhouse effect, it's possible that the last remnant of that archaic biological world is microorganisms that can live their whole lives floating in the clouds. Though it's worth noting that these clouds, again, consist primarily of suspended droplets of sulfuric acid. So these would need to be special kinds of uh, extremophile-type organisms. Mm-hmm. Now, while these possibilities are very cool, this has always been totally speculative, right? There, there has never been any actual direct strong evidence for the presence of life on Venus. There has it's just been that we've observed things that uh, could be consistent with the presence of life in interesting and surprising ways.
2: Yeah. Is there space for life as we know it within mm -hmm. what we know of Venus? Yeah. And the answer is, well, maybe more
0: space than you might think though, though Mm -hmm. we didn't have direct evidence that would say it looks like there is life. That picture got a little bit more complicated in September of this year. Uh, now, there's going to be a, a very big caveat coming with this paper. But first, I just want to present the, uh, the evidence that we that emerged back in September. And so there was a paper published in Nature Astronomy in September 2020 by Jane S. Greaves, Anita M.S. Richards, William Baines, Paul B. Rimmer, Hideo Sagawa, David L. Clements, and Sarah Seeger et al. Uh, called Phosphine Gas in the Cloud Decks of Venus. Now, this paper deals with uh, analysis of spectral data collected through a couple of telescopes. The lead author, Jane Greaves uh, of Cardiff University and colleagues, collected data through two major telescopes, the James Clerk Maxwell Telescope in Hawaii and the Atacama Large Millimeter Array in Chile. And what the study reported was that they had used spectral analysis of Venus to find something really intriguing about the gases present in the atmosphere. And what they found was at an altitude of roughly 50 kilometers above the surface, I think it was like 55 kilometers, in a concentration of about 20 parts per billion, a gas called phosphine or pH3, that's one phosphorus atom with three hydrogen atoms, Now, the chemistry nerds out there or the the Breaking Bad nerds out there uh, (laughs) will alike know that phosphine is just nasty, highly flammable, extremely toxic gas. Uh, It's often found in conjunction with traces of diphosphane or P2H4, which makes it pyrophoric. So fond of automatically catching fire upon exposure to air at room temperature – lovely. Um, (laughs) It is sometimes a product of human industry, for example, in the manufacture of semiconductors or also in the manufacture of methamphetamine. Mm. Uh, Now, no one is alleging that there are meth labs on Venus, but whatever the cause, this was a much higher level of phosphine gas than you would expect to find. At about 20 parts per billion, this is something like three orders of magnitude more phosphine than you would find in Earth's atmosphere. Now, why is it interesting to find phosphine at that concentration you know different planets have gases in their atmosphere at different levels uh, you know uh, Venus has much more carbon dioxide in its atmosphere than Earth does so so what what's the deal with phosphine why would that catch our attention? Uh, Well, in short, the presence of high levels of phosphine gas represent a disequilibrium. Phosphine gas is something that's kind of inherently unstable and digestible by physical processes, you know, exposure to ultraviolet light and chemical reactions with other things. Phosphine gas should just naturally sort of get eliminated from atmospheres and this ties in with something we talked about in one of our recent uh, anthology of horror episodes when we were we were talking about looking for signatures of a shadow biosphere on Earth. Mm-hmm. Some of the researchers there, uh, for example, I think the planetary scientist or astro- I can't remember if she's a planetary scientist or an astronomer, but the scientist Carolyn Porco uh, was talking about how if you were looking for signs of a shadow biosphere, you would want to find environments that are at a disequilibrium, things that are out of whack with like quantities of chemicals that don't seem like they would just naturally settle at that level. And I was trying to come up with a good analogy to explain why it's weird to find phosphine like this on on Venus. And so here's what I came up with. I hope this is somewhat appropriate. Imagine you live in Florida and you go out for a walk on a hot summer day in July. It's 95 degrees out, 100% humidity. And you're walking your dog along the sidewalk, and you notice that every 20 feet or so down the sidewalk, there's just a big old hunk of ice sitting on the pavement.
2: All right. Well, that that would be suspect, I think. Yeah. Something yeah, weird's but, going on. Exactly. Maybe not Florida weird, but weird. <laughs> right. Yeah.
0: The, the ice could be the result of a Florida man. That, that would explain it. It would not make a lot of sense, uh, even though ni- ice does form naturally in the environment on Earth. It would not make sense, given the conditions outside in this Florida neighborhood, to assume, oh, this is a chunk of polar ice that happens to be left over from the last glacial maximum period. Right, because, like, the the environmental conditions would have already, like, digested and recycled that ice. The ice is unstable enough, given the surrounding conditions, that you wouldn't expect it to just be there from a previous freeze-over. It also – it it wouldn't even make sense to say, well, it hailed one time last winter, so the ice is just sitting here left over from that.
2: No, it it would mean somebody is going around spilling ice all over the place or, or leaving ice on purpose on the sidewalk.
0: Yeah, there, there's something, there's got to be some kind of anomalous process that's putting the ice there. Yeah. And so back to Venus, if phosphine gas were truly present at something like 20 parts per billion, you would have to assume that something was continuously putting that phosphine there. And while it's possible the explanation was some geochemical or photochemical process that we don't understand yet, a very interesting candidate explanation was microbial life. Because here on Earth, phosphine is, when it's not made by humans, it is almost always the byproduct of microbial life, especially anaerobic microbial life. In fact, if you go way back to, I don't remember how many years ago this is now, uh, like Mm -hmm. five or six years ago. We did some Halloween episodes on the Will of the Wisp. Remember that? There would be yeah. you know, the legend of there's a light in the bog that leads a traveler off the path, and it's often attributed to a spirit or a devil. It's kind of a visual leshy. It's fairy fire. It's uh, the, the elf fire, the, the hinky puck. Or Hinky Punk? Is it Punk or Puck? I I don't remember.
2: Ooh, I can't remember if it's Punk or Puck. Yeah, I remember the the -the Will-O-The-Wisp, basically basically the idea of the -the Will-O-The-Wisp has so many strange and curious names that it's been given over the years in different cultures.
0: That episode was a lot of fun, by the way. Maybe we'll have to go back and revisit that sometime. Uh, But, so people have tried to offer plausible physical explanations for sightings of the -the Will-O-the-Wisp. Why is it that so many people uh, report seeing a, you know, a, a blue or a green light in the swamp that's dancing around as if it's a lantern carried by a ghost? And a lot of these physical explanations uh, for that phenomena involve phosphine gas. Often the explanation is some variation on, well, there's the bog or a bunch of mud, and there's rotting vegetation and, and maybe bones from animals down there that are being consumed and metabolized by anaerobic bacteria— which produce phosphine gas as a byproduct and then this phosphine gas in the presence of diphosphane or P2H4 is sort of burping up out of the earth and is sometimes spontaneously ignited on contact with the air or maybe it's just producing a sort of cool uh, blue or green glow without necessarily catching on fire uh, but it's in the presence of some of uh, some other pyrophoric gas and whatever is going on here, this glowing or, or chemoluminescent luminescent cloud or this flame becomes the will of the wisp but whether or not that is the the actual explanation for will of the wisp sightings it is absolutely true that anaerobic bacteria decomposing organic matter down in the bog will produce phosphine gas that's just something that's known they're known to do another interesting coincidence the authors proposed that the phosphine gas detected in venus's atmosphere was at altitudes of around 50 kilometers or like 55 Mm -hmm. kilometers This also happens to be an altitude where environmental conditions are much more tolerable on Venus, around 30 degrees Celsius or something like 80-something degrees Fahrenheit, and a pressure similar to Earth's atmosphere.
2: Yeah, this is one of the key um, layers on Venus that we're often looking at when we're actually sending some sort of a a probe there or planning for possible missions to Venus in the future.
0: Right. Right. And so if this phosphine gas was a byproduct of the metabolism of some type of microbe, uh, one possibility that was discussed, and this was quoted in an MIT Tech Review article I was reading. This is from uh, Jane Greaves, the lead author on the study. She said, quote, that suggests it's part of the global circulation pattern of the atmosphere where gas sinks before it travels as far as the poles. Mm -hmm. So I guess a question would be, well, could something else be putting the phosphine gas there? Like with the Florida example, uh, is there something else that could account for chunks of ice being found along the sidewalk. And you could come up with explanations. You could say, yeah, maybe, I don't know, maybe there was some kind of upper atmosphere phenomena, some kind of weird anomalous hailstorm, and these things fell, even though it's hot outside. It just happened recently. You could come up with things. Uh, for example, we know that some amount of phosphine gas is generated by abiotic, you know, non organic processes deep in the atmosphere of Jupiter. But Jupiter is a gas giant, and the phosphine there is produced under conditions that do not seem to be possible on Venus, at least as far as we know. So could it be produced by lightning or space impacts or volcanoes or some other high-energy phenomena like that? Well, again, this was analyzed by the authors of the paper, and it looks like, no, not as far as we know. Nothing, No abiotic process we're aware of seems capable of explaining the amounts of phosphine found. So basically, if, uh, if the findings in this original study from September 2020 are correct, there is anomalous gas present in the atmosphere of Venus, and we don't know of any photochemical or geochemical process that could have put it there in the amount that we find it. And on Earth, the same gas is often the byproduct of microbial life. So this is not by any means proof of alien life, but it is extremely tantalizing from an astrobiological point of view.
2: Again, kind of widens the space possible uh, for life to exist in Venus.
0: Well, I'd say more than that. I mean, it it says here's something we observe and we know it could be explained by life and nothing else that we know of would seem to explain it very well. Yeah, But to be very clear, this is not proof. Uh, and I was reading an article in uh, Chemical and Engineering News by Ariana Rimmel who uh, quotes an astrochemist who, who had some good thoughts here. So I just want to read a quote from this article. Anthony Rimijan, an astrochemist at the National Radio Astronomy Observatory, who is not involved in the study, says the team did a fantastic job presenting their findings, but he remains skeptical. Scientists need more spectral data to verify that the signal comes from pH 3, Rimijan says. Quote, but it's a first good step in that direction. As for what could produce phosphine on Venus, he says, we need a better understanding of the fundamental chemistry forming these types of molecules before calling it a biosignature. So, uh, you know, so praise for the study, but, uh, you know, caution tempering the optimism. Mm -hmm. It's not like we know there are aliens there now. And when this study was first published in September, people got really excited. A lot of listeners asked us directly to cover this on the show, especially since we'd done episodes on the possibility of life on Venus before. And it was really cool, but uh, I figured we should wait for the experts to chew on this a little more before we did an episode about it. And I'm glad we did wait because While this finding remains very interesting and is by no means totally overturned, subsequent research is making the picture look more complicated and less clear. So there are reports of at least three studies, at least one of which involves one of the same authors as the original study – and this uh they they tried to confirm the presence of phosphine and of these 3 all 3 failed to confirm it now i don't know if all of them are published yet i think at least one of them is but these are media reports uh, i was reading in for example the MIT tech review and in national geographic That were based off of reports from preprint versions of these studies. So, you know, maybe not fully confirmed yet, but there, there are at least some questions that are arising. And the basic issue is they're looking to confirm the signs of phosphine in the atmosphere and they're not necessarily finding it. So one tried to look for signs of phosphine in older archival observations of Venus and didn't find it. A couple of others processed the same raw data from the September 2020 study, just using a different mathematical analysis method, different method for crunching the numbers, And they didn't find the same strong indications for the presence of phosphine. Now, these differences could be because the initial study was mistaken or there could be other reasons. For example, in the one where they look at the uh, archival data and don't find the same thing. Well, it could be that maybe there are cycles in which the presence of phosphine gas spikes at certain times certain places in history on Venus. So from what I've been reading now, it's not as simple as yes, there is phosphine or no, there is not. It looks like at this point, it remains a complicated, unsettled question and we need more research. So what would be really great would just be like, you know, go to Venus and settle this whole thing. (laughs) (laughs)
2: Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, and of course, there, there are two ways of considering that. One, of course, is send more missions to Venus. Mm-hmm. Uh, and of course, there are a number of those either planned or in sort of a pre-planning, pre-approval phase. Uh, and then, of course, there's the, the ultimate dream, right? The idea of, of sending human explorers to Venus, uh, perhaps even as a first human venture to another world. Uh, And it's just impossible not to be excited by these these ideas. Shout out to Astapro for sponsoring this episode and providing us with free samples.
1: Get What you want without the complicated AT&T fiber live like a there. available wherever you get your podcast limited availability in select areas visit at and hyper for details.
2: So for the rest of the episode, uh, I, th- I thought we might talk about some of the more um, exciting concepts out there involving humans visiting or even staying for an extended amount of time in the atmosphere of Venus. And to kick this off, I want to read a quote from David Grinspoon in his book, Venus Revealed. Uh, this is from chapter six, and you can actually read this entire chapter, I believe, at his website, funkyscience.net, because <laughs> um, he's Dr. What, – what was his name? His, his, Dr. His Funky handle? Spoon, I think. Yeah, Dr. Yeah, Funky, Funky Spoon. That's, yeah.
0: <laughs> Come on, David. I love your work, but that's <laughs>
2: – <laughs> Oh, no, I think Funky, Funky Spoon works. You're down with that branding? Okay. Yeah, yeah. I okay. think it works. <laughs> so so anyway, uh, Grinspoon writes the following, quote, I have a fantasy of cloud cities on Venus, huge enclosed habitats suspended from giant balloons at a certain altitude where the temperature and pressure would be comfortable for us. We would mostly just have to keep the air fresh, maybe by collecting solar energy to make oxygen from CO2 or better yet, growing plants to do the job for us. Why should we bother to do such a thing? I don't know. These could be research stations, or maybe there will be some economic incentive, something rare or beautiful found only on Venus. Or maybe in the very long run, after we have solved all our major problems here on Earth, we will go just for the hell of it because it is there.
0: I'm hoping the reason that we set up colonies on Venus does not become a phosphine harvesting
2: uh, enterprise where we're just (laughs) just trying to
0: get as much poison gas as
2: we can. Yeah. I mean, maybe the secret math reserves are the reason we go there. I know, <laughs> um, but but the, I think this is a wonderful qu- quote from from Grinspoon because he's you know he's 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 very much a scientist, but he also has this uh, this this just raw uh, you know wonder and kind of science fictional curiosity too. You know, just like like imagine what it would be like if we were there, and and we've we've had various versions of this in our science fiction over the years, and you see other spins on this too, right? I mean, even um, Star Wars, you have the Bespin, which Mm. I believe is a a gas giant in the Star Wars universe, but you have a cloud city there. You have a city floating in the sky. I mean, there's
0: a few things more amazing. It seems hard to imagine that you could actually have a city floating over a gas giant because I would think a gas giant would tend to emit levels of radiation
2: that would kill everybody in the cloud city. Lando has it uh, cleaned up rather nicely, though. It looks, looks pretty swank. Yeah. Well, um, it, all this made me wonder, I, I was thinking to myself, what is the earliest example of science fiction pondering um, habitats within the clouds of Venus or something like that? And uh, I was looking around. I didn't I didn't find anybody doing the work for me on this, like conclusively. Um Trying to answer this question, maybe I just missed it. Uh, in all things, I, as in all things, I'm happy to be corrected on this if I'm wrong. But it seems like a possible answer comes from um, astronomer and sci-fi author Garrett P. Service, who wrote a uh, a book in 1909 titled "A Columbus of Space," <laughs> uh, which I think you know in 1909 would have had nicer connotations uh, before but, the uh, before the historical reassessment of Columbus. Yeah. Uh, So basically, this is about a human explorer who travels to Venus in an atomic spaceship to explore the planet. And there he encounters two different psychic species, a sort of Morlock species that lives on the planet's surface and another species that lives in the clouds that are, are basically humans or Englishmen. Uh, you can find this. This full book is available on uh, on Project Gutenberg if you look it up. But I just want to read just a quick exchange here between two characters. Uh, this is after they have arrived in their atomic rocket ship on uh, into the atmosphere of Venus. And one says to the other, those are airships, airships. Yes, yeah, surely an exploring expedition. I shouldn't wonder. I anticipated something of that kind. You know already how dense the atmosphere of Venus is. It follows that balloons and all sorts of machines for aerial navigation can float much more easily here than over on Earth. I was prepared to find the inhabitants of Venus skilled in such things, and I'm not surprised by what do we see. <laughs> So I, I also just love the spirit of that. It's like, yeah, just as I imagined, uh, yeah, there are flying ships on Venus full of Englishmen. Um, this is exactly as I thought I, it would, it would it, this is exactly how I thought it would pan out.
0: I like your Venus voice too.
2: <laughs>
0: now, why is he saying that they can float much more easily on Venus than over the Earth? Is that because it was understood at the time that the atmosphere of Venus was denser than Earth's atmosphere?
2: yeah yeah i guess that's the case here uh like i say it doesn't it certainly doesn't hold up to much um modern scrutiny it's very you know it's, it's very much old timey science fiction and i think the thing is you see a lot of that the, the the golden age of science fiction is a time where yes we were gazing at at mars and uh, and and venus and wondering what was there dreaming of canals on mars and so forth um But at the same time it was a period in which we were enraptured by uh the technology of of flight of powered human flight and so you even in is it it was even as we see modern retreatments of of this idea we see that golden age enthusiasm uh kind of uh, creep in Uh, for instance there's a short story that i i ran across i haven't read Uh, But it was published in 2010 in Asimov Science Fiction by uh, Jeffrey A. Landis, who's uh, not only a a hard science fiction author, but uh, a NASA uh, aerospace engineer. Mm -hmm. And uh, he wrote of what is apparently a kind of like golden age um, flavored sci fi tale about there being uh, habitats and ships uh, in the atmosphere of Venus. Like, I think it has princesses and all, so it's, you know, very kind of uh, uh, Edgar Rice Burroughs in its presentation. Oh, okay, cool. Is swashbuckling? Maybe. I would hope for swashbuckling, oh, buckling, you know?
0: That's got to be you sword fights on a platform over the atmosphere of Venus. You yeah, fall I mean, off, that, that's bad news.
2: Yeah, I mean, it's all part of the the, yeah, the Golden Age zeal. The atmosphere is piranhas. Now, the cool thing about balloons on Venus is you don't have to go to science fiction to to think about them and to read about them. All you have to do is look into space exploration history, because we have sent balloons to Venus. So back in 1985, the Soviet Union sent its Vega mission uh, to to Earth's uh, hot uh, neighbor here. Uh, So in addition to a lander, Vega featured two instrumental balloons that traveled roughly 30% of the way around the planet at an altitude of around 54 kilometers. Sensors in a gondola uh, attached to these balloons recorded such stats as pressure, temperature, vertical wind velocity, like that was apparently one of the the interesting findings from uh, uh, that they got with these vertical, uh, uh, you know, wind columns. And then you had clown particle, backscatter, ambient light level and lightning frequency. These were essentially aerobots, Uh now, they only made it 30% of the way around because they ran out of batteries, but they provided uh, battery power, but they, they provided some interesting data before they went offline. Now, there were other atmospheric probes from the U.S. and the USSR prior to this, but for instance, the Pioneer Venus probe it didn't even use a parachute. It was just like, you know, cutting down through the atmosphere and collecting data on the way down.
0: And we've talked about it on the show before, one of my favorite collections of images from from space exploration is the surfaces of Venus that were sent back by the Soviet Venera lander. Did mm-hmm. the Venera lander use a balloon to descend? I was try- I just trying. To look I don't. That so. I don't believe
2: so. I believe that uh, that Vega was the was the first use of balloons on on Venus. Okay. Now. In looking to, now of course, yeah parachutes are kind of a, an additional um, category uh, to consider, so I, I was looking around for what are some of the proposed Venus missions, Venus missions that may be undertaken in in the the near or eventual future that will feature balloons or parachutes mm-hmm. so I thought I might uh, mention a few before getting to the one that really uh, excites me. So first of all, there's uh, not to say that these are these are these are not all exciting because they are exciting. Any kind of uh, you know future exploration of Venus is just inherently uh, yeah. amazing. But you have uh, NASA's Da Vinci. This is the Deep Atmosphere Venus Investigation of Noble Gases, chemistry and imaging. <laughs> um, And uh, this one is currently shortlisted, uh, so it seems like it it may well come to pass. And and if it does, it will entail a parachute probe that descends through the atmosphere and collects data on the way down. Okay. So that one should be a big one. There's also the Venus in-situ explorer, or VICE. This is a (laughs) proposed lander that would then release... A meteorolo- meteorology balloon, I believe, from the surface, so the the, the meteorology balloon would be released once the, uh, the the lander has made it down. I might be wrong on that, but that's the the uh, the basic idea that I'm getting from what I was reading about it. Uh, this was has been proposed since 2003 by the planetary science uh, decadal survey. It hasn't made the cut yet, but in the future it may. There's also Shukrayan one a proposed Indian space research organization, ISRO, mission to Venus that would likely feature a Vega-esque probe. Uh, Shukra, by the way, is the name for Venus in Sanskrit. So that's where they get it. I think the name like literally means uh, Venus craft or something to that effect.
0: Oh, interesting.
2: Another really cool one is, and I think this one may have come up on the show before, Mm -hmm. is uh, Northrop uh, Grumman. And L-Guard's proposed mission, and it is the Venus Atmospheric Maneuverable Platform, or VAMP.
0: It looks like a, a futuristic, well, I would say actually kind of Bespin Cloud City-type airplane with with big wings going out on the sides.
2: Yeah, it's it's basically the, – the cool thing is it's kind of a, an, an update of an idea that uh, Northrop Grumman has been putting out for decades, and that is the flying wing. It is an inflatable the concept is an inflatable flying wing aerobot that would also boast solar arrays uh, on the top and it would uh, and it would use those for its power along with some combination of batteries and a generator that and I think have maybe not quite been developed yet. It would be propeller driven uh-huh. and it would be fully controllable though not in real time. Uh, d- and this would be during the day. So during the day, when the sunlight is able to power it up to, to full power, uh, it would be soaring up to altitudes of 70 kilometers above the surface, taking advantage of the solar intensity above the clouds. And then at night, it would power down and dip down to a cruising floating altitude of around 56 kilometers. Oh, that's funny.
0: So it's nighttime floating altitude might be right around where the, the phosphine was allegedly
2: found, if it was fact yeah. found. Yeah, and at that point it would just be cruising or just floating. Now, also interesting, the vamp would actually uh, the the idea is that the vamp would probably inflate in space and enter the atmosphere without an aeroshell. So without mm. this kind of sarcophagus to hold, to protect it. Uh, quote, large surface area produces benign heating loads during entry. And this would, of course, all be supported by an accompanying satellite. And the vamp would last for months to possibly a year, eventually losing out to the gradual loss of the buoyant gas inside it.
0: Okay. Today's episode is brought to you by eBay. eBay Motors is here for the ride.
1: Get what you want without the complicated. AT&T Fiber, live like a beginner Available wherever you get your podcast. Limited availability in select areas. Visit at slash hypergig for details.
3: Rev up your thrills this summer at Cedar Point on the all-new Top Thrill 2. Drive the sky on the world's tallest and fastest triple-launch vertical speedway. And now, for a limited time, get more Cedar Point fun for less with our limited-time bundle for just $49.99. Get admission parking and all-day drinks for one low price. But you better hurry, because this bundle won't last long. Save now at cedarpoint.com.
0: But wait, I think we're about to get to your, to your real baby here, right?
2: Yeah, this is the one that I, I read a little bit about, and then I got excited, and I was like, oh man, this, we got to go back to Venus. And that is Havoc. H A V O C.
0: This is what's got you uh sending your your harassing letters to NASA like do the havoc <laughs> do havoc now
2: havoc is just this is one of those proposed missions where you read about it and it's is it's, it's it's as exciting as any movie or or television show or sci fi short story you might uh, come across because it's it's unique and thrilling and it's hard to imagine the type of person who would do it, but you know they exist. I mean, this is the type of, 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 of human being that goes on, uh, on a space mission. But, yeah, this is the Havoc, high-altitude Venus operational concept. And there are essentially two different versions of it. One is the robotic version that would be the, the necessary precursor to the, the second variety, which would be a crude NASA Venus mission.
0: So to be clear, this is a this is a mission concept. It's not something that's like on track to to actually launch or be produced right now. But it's sort of like it's on the menu of things that could be selected for future missions.
2: Right. We would the Havoc project itself. If it were to come to pass, there would be like two or three. There would be multiple missions, which I'll get into leading up to humans actually going. But also it would not be our next Venus mission. Uh, You know, under any circumstances like this, this is something we might be able to do in the future.
0: You know, I'm embarrassed to say I while I was reading about this, I couldn't help but keep thinking about there was this terrible video game. Do you remember the command and conquer first person shooter? Ooh, I don't know that I do what 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 system era was this uh, I think it was I think I played it on PC many many years ago so command and conquer games are like real time strategy games you move all these like little troops around and stuff oh, but yeah. they made one game in the series that's set in the same universe but you play this like marine guy who it's a first person shooter and the guy you play is named havoc very cool <laughs> and everybody's like havoc you you don't go off mission you do as you're told And he's <laughs> like sure thing general
2: Oh, man. Were you were you good at the real time strategy games? No, no. I because I was horrible at them. Like I wanted to love them. They put out these these really well put together uh, Dawn of War games based on uh, 40k stuff. And I really wanted to love them. But I was just terrible at them. It was just like chaos and loss. Uh-huh. Anytime I tried to play it at any level just
0: weeping and just watching the destruction of your forces and your empires. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I've, I've never been an elite gamer of any kind whatsoever. So no, I'm not good at that or any other type of game.
2: It just felt like too much multitasking. Like I, I, I like games where I can be specific and strategic where I can pause and think, I guess that's why I'm, I'm more of a, a, um, a turn-based strategy versus real time strategy. It's just, uh, I'll, I'll take the, the turn-based anytime. You're a magic, the gathering warlock. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, not not that whatever real time magic is. That's just too too much pressure. All right, so so back to havoc. So, Sorry if that was a terrible digression. We can cut that no, 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 if we no. need to. <laughs> no, no, it stays in. Um, so basically, in essence, havoc entails the use of human exploration in the upper Venusian atmosphere aboard a helium airship. Ooh. So. This airship would be about um, one hundred and twenty nine meters or four hundred and twenty three feet long thirty four meters or one hundred and eleven feet tall so as the uh, as it's as it's presented in one of the uh, the, the PDFs that I came across uh, uh, from uh, from the uh, the people putting it together uh, it would be about half the size of the Hindenburg but twice as long as sort of your average goodyear blimp. I love that they're just
0: reminding people of the Hindenburg in the
2: proposal. Yeah. They didn't say a Zeppelin. <laughs> <laughs> so, so very much like whatever you're picturing in, in mind for like a blimp or a Zeppelin or an airship, like that's basically the initial look of what they've proposed, but there are going to be some key differences as well. So a prope- propeller driven gondola Uh, on the bottom, you know, this is the uh, habitable portion of it, uh, would contain both an atmospheric habitat for two crew members over 28 days, along with an ascent vehicle, essentially a rocket with an ascent habitat on the front of it that would, at the end of its time in the atmosphere, allow the two crew members to rocket back to the transit vehicle in low uh, Venusian orbit for the return trip.
0: Oh, that's interesting because... So one of the big questions about uh, crude missions to other planetary bodies like Mars or something like that is, you know, how are you going to leave the planet? How do you get back, mm-hmm. back up off? So you'd probably need to take some kind of rocket with you that would need to be able to attain escape velocity. I wonder, is it easier to leave a planet if you're in, in the atmosphere as opposed to on the surface? I, well, of course, it it would be easier, right? You'd need less force, less thrust to escape from there than you would from the surface.
2: Yeah, but it's a different, just a different scenario than you encounter thinking about these other planets, or, mm-hmm. you know, like Mars, or, or thinking about traveling to Earth's moon, for example. Because, again, this is one of the crazy things. A trip like this to Venus would not entail actually setting foot on the planet. You would never go down to the true uh, Venus firma. Uh, you know, you would yeah. you would only be going into the upper atmosphere, hanging out there for like, you know, again, something like 28 days and then returning to low orbit from there.
0: Yeah, it's something that's not usually considered. Our, our, we think of visiting other planets in a binary. You've got orbit and then you've got surface activity. And this would be in between.
2: It's like if you were planning a visit to New York City, but, you're, but you were, you weren't going to actually travel to uh, – Times Square. Mm-hmm. You can only limit yourself to the very outer boroughs, right? And right. then return home. Yeah, I just went on vacation to Queens. <laughs> no no disparaging Queens, by the way. No, no. If anything, we should be disparaging Times Square like that. You shouldn't <laughs> land. Landing in Times Square is like landing on the surface of Venus. What were you thinking going in that deep?
0: You need a rocket to escape the bubblegum Shrimp. <laughs>
2: So uh, I, I recommend uh, you know everyone look up pictures of the the concept, the models they've put together for this because it is great. It's like this the gondola with the propellers, the ascent vehicle. Uh, again, looks very much like a, a cool rocket um, harnessed behind it. Uh, it's very neat. Uh, we in essence we'd be talking about sending three habitats on the Havoc mission. So there'd be the transit habit, habitat uh, that the uh, crew members would be in on the way to and from the planet Venus, this would be the space um, habitat. Mm -hmm. There'd be uh, the, uh, and then there would be the atmospheric habitat on the gondola. That would be where they'd spend in their 28 days. And then, or less, depending on uh, how it goes. And then the ascent habitat is the one on the front of that rocket just to get them back up into orbit so they can get back into the transit habitat and return home.
0: Well, I got to say, that does sound complicated. I think that you have a lot of moving pieces like that. You introduce... increasing difficulty into the mission, right?
2: Yeah, because in all, the mission would see the ship arrive at Venus, then drop an airship from low Venusian orbit on a parachute, okay? Parachutes in towards the upper atmosphere. It's going to drop its aeroshell, its protective sarcophagus. It's going to then unfurl and inflate the helium blimp. It's going to drop the parachute altogether, and uh, and it's going to carry out atmospheric activities for up to 28 days, Then when the time comes to leave, the two crew members hopping the ascent vehicle return to low Venusian orbit, leaving the airship to continue on for the duration of its life uh, in the Venusian atmosphere. They get back in the transit vehicle and they return back to Earth.
0: I hope the airship would get to send pictures back as it sinks down into the atmosphere gradually over time.
2: I assume that would be yeah, be part of it, you know, sort of using every part of the buffalo uh, on the mission, you know, like mm-hmm. planning out exactly what it's going to do for the rest of its life. Now, they see this being ultimately there being five phases to this branch of, of uh, Venus exploration. So phase one would be a robotic version of this same concept. Just obviously do it without people and see how feasible it is. Phase two would be a 30 day mission to bring the crew to orbit around Venus, but then not deal with the atmosphere at all. Phase three would be a 30 day mission to bring the crew to the atmosphere. And this would be the, the model we just discussed phase four. They touch on would be a version that entails a one year voyage in the atmosphere. So like the next, this is like the stretch goal for this particular project. <laughs> and then ultimately phase five would be the Grin Spoon special, a permanent human presence in gondola habitats, um, uh, up there uh, in the upper atmosphere of Venus.
0: Hopefully small enough that you don't fall under the
2: jurisdiction of the empire at all. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, so advocates of this mission and just Venus missions in general, they point out that, that Venus has an induced magnetosphere from the interaction of its thick atmosphere with the solar wind, and its near proximity to the sun brings it further within the sun's magnetic field. So there's arguably less of a cosmic radiation risk compared to Mars. It's also easier to get to, making it, by some estimates, an ideal first step in reaching Mars. Um, now, this I don't know. You may be getting into a little like Team Venus versus Team Mars uh, competition here. Something that Grinspoon was talking about. You know, the, the, yeah. the
0: legitimate yeah. rivalries there.
2: Yeah, but um, you know, but the shortest possible distance from Earth to Venus is something like thirty-eight million kilometers versus fifty-six million kilometers for Mars and a year
0: on venus is much shorter so you know christmas comes earlier there
2: <laughs> yeah uh, again we have to do have to stress though havoc uh as well as stuff like vamp it very much just mission concepts at this point it's nothing on the books Da Vinci, I think, is going to probably be the project that gets the nod next. Uh, We'll see how it goes. But either way, Venus missions are only an option every 19 months because I mentioned that the the closest distance we've touched on this before, like if you're talking about going to another planet, it depends uh, on where Earth is in relation to that planet, how long of a journey you're talking. And you want, of course, uh, calculate it so that you're making the shortest voyage uh, possible to reach that other planet.
0: Yeah, yeah. So as somebody who feels a lot of sympathy for the Venus partisans and the rivalries between the planetary scientists, I, uh, I hope that this study from September of 2020 this year and, and all the subsequent research, whether it turns out that there's good evidence for the presence of the phosphine gas or not, I hope this at least spurs uh, more attention to Venus, like it gets more uncrewed missions there at least um, to awaken the hunger for Venus knowledge uh, among the people generally.
2: Yeah, yeah, just to build public interest in Venus, like it's a, a strange and an exciting planet, and and missions. I, I feel like Havoc alone should be one of these programs that uh, that everyone should look at because it makes me more excited about about Venus to just even think about people. Can you can you imagine can you imagine the footage much less being there like that's that's a step too far for me to be imagined being aboard this vessel in the, the the within the skies or kind of over the clouds of an alien world. But just to see the footage of that that journey. That would be amazing. Totally agree. I can't wait to see where we where we go from here. Yeah.
0: Is, is that the end? If we're if we're the doorways, is it
2: time to close ourselves <laughs> on the way out? <laughs> I, I guess it is. Yeah. Obviously we could talk more about Venus and, and I hope we do talk more about Venus. Uh you know, maybe maybe we can we can get uh, get Grinspoon back on the program to talk about it. I know he, he discussed potentially writing more about Venus. That book that he wrote about Venus came out many years ago. Mm-hmm. So he it's probably overdue for re exploration. Totally. In the meantime, we'd love to hear from everyone out there. Um what are your thoughts about Venus, Venus exploration, or some of the missions we've talked about here? What are your thoughts about the possibility of life in Venus? Do you have other examples of of early science fictional uh, visions of balloons in the atmosphere of Venus? Uh, let us know. We'd love to hear from you. Likewise, uh, just space science in general and other planets uh would you like us uh, to do more episodes like this in the future is there a particular planet that we have not journeyed to that you would like us to visit uh reach out to us and let us know uh in the meantime just rate review and subscribe the show wherever you get the uh, ability to do so and if uh oh if you go to stuff to dot com that'll take you over to our iheart listing uh, for the show. And there's a button there or a listing there somewhere. You can click on store, and that will take you over to our t shirt shop. You can get some T-shirts or stickers or tote bags or what have you with our logo on them or some cool designs like a monster or a basilisk or a you know, Pandora uh, opening up a box full of all the, the, the problems and the challenging ideas in the world. It's all there for you to consider.
0: Still waiting on our Weird House Cinema Mad Love Sausage Man T-shirt, but I'm, <laughs> I'm hoping that will happen soon. All right. Okay, huge thanks, as always, to our excellent audio producer, Seth Nicholas Johnson. If you would like to get in touch with us with feedback on this episode or any other, to suggest a topic for the future, or just to say hello, you can email us at contact at stufftoblowyourmind.com.
3: Stuff to Blow Your Mind is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app.
2: Zumo Play.